Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. One last time, we are in this great book of the Old Testament. And you can turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. I want to give you an FYI, too, for next week. Next week, we begin a series uh, in the book of Psalms entitled Summer in the Psalms Part 2. Last summer, we as elders went through uh, an assortment of psalms together, and uh, this year, back by popular demand, we're going to be looking at uh, the psalms again. So that starts next week, and we're going to be sharing the load and preaching through uh, specific uh, chapters of the psalms. And today's message in Habakkuk 3, it might as well be a psalm. Because, you know, Habakkuk 3 is about as close as you can get to a psalm-like writing in the prophets. I know we're in the minor prophets, we're in Habakkuk, but this is, this is as close as you can get to a psalm in the prophets. And it's clear that it is a song, not just a psalm, but a song, something that was meant to be sung from verse 1 of chapter 3 that starts out this way, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigian oath. Just so you know that word for prayer... Tifalah in Hebrew, Hebrew is used five times in the book of Psalms as a title. Psalm 17, Psalm 86, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, Psalm 142. So there's some linkage there to the book of Psalms. And that word Shigianoth there is also used in the title of Psalm 7. It's a musical term, more than likely. To be honest, we don't know. We don't know what it means. What does Shigianoth mean? The Akkadian word Shigu means a lament. So this is possibly a lament. And also in Habakkuk chapter 3, the word Selah. Y'all are familiar with that word, right? That word shows up three times. And the only place that this word is found other than Habakkuk 3 is in the Psalms. And again, nobody knows what that means. It's one of the last great mysteries of the Hebrew Bible. What does Selah mean? We don't know. It's probably a musical notation too it might mean something like change keys or change tone or it might mean you know play louder like we would use the italian fortissimo in our music something like that habakkuk 3 also just to uh, reinforce this idea that this is music chapter 3 it ends with this statement to the choir master with stringed instruments so just to be clear, this chapter, possibly even the whole book of Habakkuk, was originally a song to be sung. And I love that about this book. You guys know me. I love music. I love the idea that, that people actually sang this to the Lord. Music is a beautiful thing, a gift from the Lord. Where's the worship team, right? Worship team, y'all should be amening this stuff. The great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, said this, the best, most beautiful, most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. We did a little bit of that today, didn't we? The reformer, Martin Luther, he loved music. He loved music. In fact, he didn't like the way that the Catholic Church did music. He thought it was too boring and monotonous. So he's like, I'm going to write my own songs. And he did. And people still sing them today. Martin Luther said this, he said, beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. I have found that to be true. And he says, it is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us, music. Luther also said this, he said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. 
And maybe that's why Martin Luther loved the book of Psalms so much, because it was the word of God and music. Maybe that's why I'm so excited about Habakkuk 3 this morning, because it's the word of God, you guys know me, and it's music. What could be better than this? In fact, if I was a better musician, I'd sing Habakkuk 3 to you this morning. But I'm not that good a musician or a vocalist, so I'm going to preach it. But I'm going to preach it in a sing-songy voice. How's that? <laughs> Get ready. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm, I'm titling this message today, Faith Song for a Savior. This is Habakkuk's great statement of faith in music. And here's what I want to encourage you to do today. I'm going to go straight to application, even with your outline this morning. I want to encourage you to sing, Harvest Decatur. Sing corporately, yeah, at church, but I'm going to encourage you to sing on your own. I'm going to encourage you to belt out a song for the Lord. But here's the key. Here's the, the, the catch. I'm going to encourage you to do it not just when life is good. I'm going to encourage you to sing a song not just when life is happy, 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 okay? Or when life is incandescently happy, as Jane Austen would say. I'm going to encourage you to sing a song of praise to the Lord when life is hard and when life is difficult and distressing. So go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. In times of distress, in times of uncertainty, sing this, Harvest Decatur, sing a song of submission to the Lord. In times of distress, in times of uncertainty, sing a song of submission to the Lord. Now, before we get to the song in Habakkuk 3, let's just refresh the situation in the book of Habakkuk. In chapter 1, Habakkuk complained that God wasn't taking out the wicked leaders in Israel, in Judah, to be specific. He was letting them continue. Probably the wicked king Jehoiakim. And God says in response to Habakkuk's complaining, I am taking them out. I'm going to use the Babylonians to take them out. And when Habakkuk heard that, he was like, what? I didn't ask for that. How can you do that, God? How can you use a more wicked nation than Judah to take us out or to punish us? And then God says in response to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you got to trust me. The righteous live by faith. Trust me, I'm going to deal with the Babylonians too. And then God spends all of chapter 2 talking about how he will indeed bring judgment upon the Babylonians. They will get what's coming to them. God's going to deal with this situation. And then at the end of chapter 2, God says in verse 20, The Lord is in his holy temple. Listen up, Habakkuk. Listen up, Babylonians. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, hush. Hush, Babylonians. Hush, gods of the Babylonians. You can't talk anyway, so what does it matter? Hush, Habakkuk. No more complaining. No more debating with me. You need to trust me. You need to trust me. And so what does Habakkuk do? To his credit, he does trust God. He does have faith in God. This Song Habakkuk 3 is Habakkuk's faith song. And so he starts by praying a prayer of submission, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigi Anoth. And in his prayer, Habakkuk says this. Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work 
Yahweh do I fear. In other words, I receive what you have said, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm done arguing. I relent. I receive it. I'm, I'm going to accept what you say by faith. And also, I'm in awe of your work, O Lord. I fear you, God. I'm too afraid to keep complaining at this point. And you know, by the way, just it is right to fear God. Do you know that? And it's right to fear God in song, in worship. If you're here on Sunday morning and there's not a right reverence and awe for the Lord, you're not worshiping God rightly. You don't know God like you should. It is right to fear the Lord and his power. And that's what Habakkuk does right now. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. He says this, in the midst of the years, revive it or keep it alive, your word, your report. In the midst of the years, make it known. With all these things that you're bringing about, the Babylonians coming, make, make your report known. Make yourself known to us as a people. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, what Habakkuk's saying is, you do you, God, you do you. You do what you are going to do. I submit to your plan. Please don't forget about us, though. In wrath, remember us. Remember your covenant with your people. In wrath, Lord, don't, don't, don't forget about us. The parallels here for our lives are striking, by the way. There is wrath coming. It is imminent in our world. God will judge the wicked. God has promised to judge the wicked in our day. Nobody's going to escape the wrath of God. And so likewise, we can say, oh, Lord, your work do I fear. In wrath, remember mercy. You do what you do, God. We submit to you, to your perfect will in our days. Our world is growing increasingly wicked. We are piling up judgment for ourselves in this world, in our country even. The coming of outpouring of your wrath is inevitable, but in your wrath, Lord, remember us. Remember mercy. Remember your people and be gracious to us. I warned you, this is not a happy song. This is, this is a song that in, in many ways is a lament before the Lord about the coming judgment. And his, you know, this is, this is a country song. I said that already, didn't I? <laughs> I lost my wife, I lost my truck, I lost my dog. But it's all right, it'll all be good in the end. That's this. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. It's a country song. This is a Bob Dylan song. It's a hard rains are gonna fall. That's what he's saying. Except, unlike Bob Dylan, this is not a song of protest. This is a song of submission. Habakkuk is submitting to the Lord's will. Everybody got it? Here's number two. Write this down in your notes as well. In times of distress and uncertainty, sing a song of submission. Here's also what you do. You sing a song of remembrance. You sing a song of remembrance. Now what follows here, the next 12 verses, I'm not, I'm not going to go over this in great detail. I just want to hit the high points. But, but overwhelmingly what Habakkuk does here in these next 12 verses, verses 3 through 15, is remember the Exodus. Remember God's goodness when he brought the Israelites out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt. And, and Habakkuk does it with, with amazing originality in these next few verses. He is dramatic. He is poetic. He is at some points cryptic and mysterious. But what he's doing is he's remembering God's work in the most important event in Israel's history, the, the Exodus, when God 
brought his people out of Egypt. You know, in the Old Testament world, there are two events that, that the prophets are always harking back to, two things that happened in the Old Testament that everybody keeps looking back to. The first thing is the, the calling of Abraham. God repeatedly says over and over again, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your forefathers. God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to this new land, to this new place. He claimed Abraham as his own. I think that's why Habakkuk is having such trouble with this. The Chaldeans are coming to Israel to judge the Israelites and take us back to Chaldea. I thought we came out of there. Why are we going back there? I think that's why there's this cognitive dissonance with Habakkuk as he's writing. Why are we going back to the place where Abraham came out of? Chaldea, Babylon. So that's one event that the Old Testament writers keep harking back to. The other one is the Exodus. God says repeatedly, I am the God who led you out of slavery in Egypt. I am the God who led you to the promised land. The Exodus, let me say it this way, the Exodus was for the Israelites what Jesus Christ and the cross are for us as New Testament Christians. We keep harking back to that. It's the most important event in history. They keep harking back to the Exodus because that was the most important event in their history, looking forward, obviously, to Jesus dying for their sins. They didn't have a picture of that fully yet. That for them, the Exodus was for them what Jesus is for us. And so that's why God keeps saying, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God of the Exodus. Stop rebelling against me, he says repeatedly in the prophets, because I'm the God who led you out of Egypt. So here's the application for us. Let me just give you the application before we even unpack the text. You got to remember, Harvest Decatur, what God has done for you. You got to remind yourself again and again, and sometimes be reminded by your loving pastor what God has done for you. Question What's God done for me, Pastor Tony? I'm glad you asked. I love telling you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we remember. That's that. Question, how, how do I know God loves me, Pastor Tony? How do, how do I know that I know that I know that? How do you know that? How can you be so confident about it? Here's the answer. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't ever forget that, Christian. That is our exodus. That is the event that we are constantly harking back to. I've said this before, let me say it again. There's nothing in this life that is so bad or so discouraging that Christ dying for you on the cross can't rectify it or ameliorate it. Nothing. There's no trial in this life that can't be overcome by the truth that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you and is coming back for you. Nothing. And we got to remind ourselves about that often. So that's your application. Now let's get to the text, okay? Habakkuk says this in verse 3. He says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Timon in Hebrew means south. And Paran is the desert area of Sinai. So Mount Paran is a reference to God's dramatic appearance in Mount Sinai. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there was, 
And there he veiled his power. Do you remember God's power demonstrated at Mount Sinai when he showed up to the Israelites? It was a fear-inducing event at Mount Sinai. It was all power and glory and pyrotechnics when God showed up in Sinai. You thought the fireworks this last week were good. You ain't seen nothing yet. You should have seen this. Exodus 19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Habakkuk is referencing that great event with poetic imagery and poetic language here and now he moves backwards to what preceded Mount Sinai and that's the plagues. Verse 5, before him, before Yahweh, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Remember the plagues of Egypt? Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. This is metaphorical here for how God terrified the nations when the Israelites left Egypt. And, and there may even be some allusion here to Genesis 1 and 2 when God created the world. Of course, God can do all of these things and control nature because God created the whole universe. It's just that simple. And by the way, when the Israelites left Egypt, everybody was terrified of the Israelites, the God of the Israelites anyways. And when they came to Jericho, Rahab said, we heard what happened to you in Egypt and our hearts melted. We're terrified of you. Even the Egyptians, when they left Egypt, remember, they were like, here, take some stuff and get out of here. You're killing our country. God is killing our country. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The Cushanites and the Midianites were desert dwellers in Sinai and the Transjordan. The Midianites were the offspring of Abraham and Keturah, Abraham's wife after Sarah died. And they intermingled with the Ishmaelites in the desert. They opposed Israel when they came to the promised land. Some of y'all might remember the Midianite king Balak who wanted to curse the Israelites when they came in. So he hired that guy Balaam to curse the Israelites, but his donkey had something to say about that. That's these Midianites. They tremble before the Lord. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Remember, God parted the waters twice after the Exodus. He parted the waters at the Sea of Reeds, and then he also parted the waters at the Jordan River just before they entered the Promised Land. You guys know all about that, don't you? You've seen the movie, haven't you? You've seen Charlton Heston with his arms in the air, Shouting, behold, his mighty hand. There's that picture. That's a great cinematic moment right there. You know all about this. Here, and what happened after that? The waters, uh, the land was dry after the waters parted. The Israelites went over it. The Egyptians were chasing them. The Egyptians went there thinking they're going to chase the Israelites. And then what did God do after that? What did he do? Can I use a... Texas colloquialism for you he whomped them that's what he did <laughs> he brought down the waters on the chariots and he killed them and and Habakkuk puts it ironically here he says in verse 8 you rode on your horse wait God rode on his horse on your chariot of salvation wait a second the Egyptians rode on their chariots but God rode what 
the sea the sea was his chariot yeah he used his sea as a chariot and he whomped them everybody got it this is poetry folks it's beautiful Look at verse 9. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. That's Hebrew for you threw down the, your gauntlet. That's Hebrew for you took off the kid gloves. Took your bow out. Give me some arrows. About to make some war right here. That's what God's doing. You split the earth with rivers. Verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. There's probably some allusion there to the flood as well as to the destruction of the Egyptians. The idea here, again and again, is that God has the power over nature. You know, we have this earthquake this last week, and everybody's terrified about what could happen. And good, good. God has power over nature in ways that we don't. They had their weapons, the Egyptians. God has his weapons. His weapons are better than our weapons. And God can conquer the Egyptians if he wants to. He can conquer the Assyrians if he wants to. He can conquer the Babylonians if he wants to. He can conquer the Romans if he wants to. God has all of this power at his disposal. The power of nature. The power over nature. That's why it's so remarkable, by the way, when on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, simmer down now. Be quiet, sea waves. And his disciples were like, who's this guy? Who, who, who commands the sea and the waves? Who indeed? Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. I'm not so sure at this point if Habakkuk isn't moving from what God has done to what God is going to do at the end of time. I mean, Habakkuk, he might be speaking metaphorically of, again of the Exodus, but you know, Habakkuk is a prophet, right? Maybe he's foretelling the future because I'll just tell you, verse 11 and 12, this sounds more like Revelation than it sounds like Exodus. There's a moment in Revelation 19 where John says a sharp sword will proceed from Jesus' mouth and he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus, sweet little baby Jesus is going to do that. Yeah, Jesus is going to do that. He's a war here, and he's going to put the nations in their place at the end of time. Habakkuk says in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Sheesh. Whew. Selah. <laughs> you pierced him with his own arrows, the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let me just translate that for you. You womp them, says Habakkuk. You beat the Egyptians, you can beat anybody. You saved your anointed Israel, your Mashiach, your anointed one. You saved us once. I, th I think this is what he's saying, Habakkuk is alluding to. You saved us once with the Egyptians. You can save us again with the Babylonians. Yeah, okay, the Babylonians are coming. 
You have the power over them, Lord. Exercise that power. The Old Testament commentator, Kenneth Barker, he says it this way. He says, Habakkuk called on God to work in the present day in the way that he had worked in the past. Habakkuk meant for God to work a new redemption from the tyranny of Babylon, just like he had delivered Israel from the old tyranny of Egypt. You did it back then. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Save us from the Babylonians. Now, this is a song, folks. This, this, is, this is music. I know it's kind of weird to think of this as music, you know? You trampled the sea with your passion, you know? Who sings like this? You thresh the nations in anger. Sounds like a heavy metal song or something. We don't sing songs like this in our day, do we? About God the warrior? We do, kind of. Oh God, who set us free from our captivity, your hand is strong to save. You split the raging sea, you crushed our enemies. Your hand is strong to save. We do sing songs like this. My foes are many. They rise against me. But I will hold my ground. I will not fear the war. I will not fear the storm. My help is on the way. My help is on the way. We sing songs like this, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power, breath and living water. Such a marvelous mystery. We do sing songs like this, and we should sing songs like this. And by the way, our remembrance, like I said earlier, is not the same as the remembrance of Habakkuk. Yeah, Habakkuk is is remembering what God has done in the Exodus. We remember that too, but we also remember that the God of the Exodus is the God of the resurrection. We're on this side of the cross. What's our great salvific event that we sing about and celebrate and remember? It's that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, took on human flesh, came to earth, and died on the cross for our sins. Remember that, church. And he didn't stay dead. Right? Three days later, he was raised from the dead, and even now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. Remember that. Remember that when life is hard. Remember that when things get tough. That Jesus Christ died for me, that he loves me, that he's interceding for me. And don't forget this too, he's coming back for me. And my future is secure. Do we need to be reminded of that often? Some of you might say, yeah, Pastor Tony, every Sunday. Bring it. Tell us about it again. And let me encourage you, in the vein of this outline, sing songs about this. Harvest. Remembrance. Not just remembrance of the Old Testament, God of the Israelites, sure, but also songs about what Christ has done for us, how he died for us, how he saved us. Here's a song that you can sing. We sang this already. You don't have to wait till Sunday to sing this. When my doubt and my shame hang over me, like the arrows of the enemy, I will run again to Calvary, that rugged hill of hell's defeat, my fortress and my victory. I love Wren Collective. I like what those guys are doing. Those crazy 
Irishman. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing that. Sing songs like that. And here's the end of the matter for Habakkuk. Here's how Habakkuk lands this plane, this book. He's complained about God in chapter 1. He's questioned God in the first two chapters of this book, and God responded. And then in chapter 3, he's surrendered to the Lord. He remembers God in chapter 3. And here's what he does at the end of chapter 3. He rejoices in God. And here's the application for us. In times of distress, in times of uncertainty, sing a song of rejoicing. In times of suffering, harvest decatur. In times of doubt, in times of hurt, in times of stress, in times of anxiety, sing a song of rejoicing to the Lord. It is good for your soul. Some of you might say, that's, that's counterintuitive, Pastor Tony. Yes, it is. That's hard to do, Pastor Tony. I know it is. I know it is. The righteous will live by faith. You need to trust God in those moments. And the hard moments of life. And, you know, let me say it this way, too, not to trivialize whatever you're going through, but if Habakkuk can do it, you can do it. You can do it. Because just think about Habakkuk for a second. In chapter 2, God basically told him that an evil bunch of godless people are going to come into his nation and take them away into captivity. Anybody got an issue like that going on in your life right now? I mean, what if I told you this morning I heard from the Lord and Iraq and Iran, they're rising up and they're going to come and they're going to invade America. They're going to take all of our children as exiles. Would, would you say, oh, well, let's sing a song of rejoicing in the Lord. Would you do that? Yeah, what, how does Habakkuk respond to this? To what God says, to what God declares here. God says, I'm bringing Babylon. They're going to punish Israel. And here's how Habakkuk concludes the matter. And starting in verse 16, just to know that, you're, that Habakkuk's not crazy. I mean, it's not easy for him. He says, I hear and my, bo my body trembles. Literally, my bowels tremble. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Harking back to verse 2 here, what Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I've, I've, heard, you, I've heard it, Lord. I've heard what you've said. I've heard you reply to me, and I'm, I'm going to trust you. Even though, even though my heart aches, even though my bowels tremble, even, even though my bones are, are, you know, rottenness enters them right now because of what you've told me, because of this report, I'm going to trust you in this, and I'm going to wait patiently on you. And then he says this as part of his faith song. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, 
and the fields yield no food. The flock be caught off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. What is that? What's he describing there? Economic devastation for an Israelite. Economic despair. He's been, you know, he's lost his job, you might say, in our day. There's no money in the bank. He's in debt up to his eyeballs. Though that happens, says Habakkuk. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You ever say that to the Lord? Make me like a deer, Lord. Make me like a deer. Treading on high places. Sonny and I saw a deer the other day in our backyard. She was like 10 feet from us. Didn't see us at first. And then she saw us and she hissed at us. I didn't know deer did that. She snorted, and it, I mean, both of us were like, oh, man. And then this doe, I don't know how much she weighs, 100 pounds, 150 pounds. Yeah, you guys, some of y'all have seen our backyard. It's pretty steep. She just bolted, running gracefully and beautifully. If I had run like that, I would have tripped and fallen all the way down the bottom of the hill. What's this image here? Well, especially in Israel, you know, you have these, these high places, these crags and these rocky terrains. And, you know, if we're up there running around, we'll fall on those crags and die. But a deer, jumping, running, no problem. That's what Habakkuk is describing here. It's poetry, folks. It's poetry. I'm like a deer. There's tough things all around me. There's crags everywhere. I could fall down at any moment, but I'm like a deer in the high places. God's taking care of me. I heard a story this last week about Benjamin Franklin. Not a Christian, by the way, Benjamin Franklin, but he, he did have a great respect for the Bible as a good Presbyterian kid that grew up in the church. And he was very familiar with the book of Habakkuk because of his Presbyterian upbringing. I heard about Benjamin Franklin that one time he was in Paris and he was surrounded by these Parisians that were making fun of the Bible. It was very fashionable to do that, making fun of the Bible, making fun of even Americans that trusted the Bible, mocking Franklin for his admiration of the Bible. Well, one, one evening, uh, Franklin came to them, and he played a little trick on them. He said, I I've found this ancient poetry that's just beautiful. You guys are going to love this. And so he, he, they were like, sure, give it to us. We're always looking for new poetry. And so he read to them Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And this group of sophisticated elites, they praise, oh, what a beautiful poem. Oh, that's wonderful. We love it. How do we get copies of that? And Franklin's like, well, it's in your Bible. It's Habakkuk chapter 3 in the Old Testament. And, I, and I'll be honest, you know, this, this is good poetry. There's something majestic and com compelling about Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. For everybody, for unbelievers, this is inspiring stuff right here, even for unbelievers. But, but let's just kind of take this apart. How many of us really, I mean really, 
Live out what Habakkuk says here. Though my fields yield no fruit, basically. Though I got no food in my pantry. Though I'm about to die. You know, can you rejoice in the Lord in a moment like that? No way, Pastor Tony. We got to eat. We complain to the Lord when we get a little paper cut, don't we now? Maybe it's just me. How could we possibly rejoice in the Lord if we lost our jobs, if we went through economic devastation? We wouldn't rejoice. We would revolt against the Lord. How can you allow this to happen? We certainly wouldn't sing a song of rejoicing in that moment. I heard another story this last week about the English missionary, a man named Alan Gardner. In 1851, this man, Gardner, was shipwrecked with a number of other people on a little remote, uninhabited island off the bottom tip of South America. And everyone on Gardner's ship, after that shipwreck, slowly starved to death and died. They all died one at a time, and Gardner was the last person alive. And then he died. And later on, after they found the shipwreck and they found all these dead bodies, they found a journal, Alan Gardner's journal, and this was the last thing that he wrote in his journal. He cited Psalm 34, verse 10, which says this, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So here's, here's a man who's dying of hunger. The last thing he wrote in his diary was essentially, I'm overwhelmed with the sense of God's goodness. I'm dying from hunger, but God is good. And Tim Keller says about this man, here's a man dying of starvation. Here's a man far from home. Here, his body is broken. All his hopes are dashed. And his last words, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Now just think about that for a second. When, when do you say God is good? When do we say God is good? When are we overwhelmed with the goodness of God? It's when things are going good, right? It's when we got all kinds of good things. It's when our health is good. It's we've got money in the bank. When, when that's happening, hashtag blessed. We're blessed. None of us, I don't know, maybe some of us, would put hashtag blessed when we're going through despair, when we're struggling with something, when we're hurting through something. But here's a guy, Alan Gardner, who going, going starving to death can say hashtag blessed. The goodness of the Lord is good enough for me even when I'm starving to death. Habakkuk can write hashtag blessed when the Babylonians are coming for him and for his people. Can you do that, Christian? Are you there yet in your faith? I don't know if I'm there yet, but I want to be there. This inspires me. I want to be like these men. I want to trust in God's goodness even when life is hard. And in an effort to do that, in times of distress and uncertainty, I'm going to sing a song of submission. I'm going to sing a song of remembrance. I'm going to sing a song of rejoicing. Remember what Job said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where I want to get in my spiritual walk. I'll close with this. I feel like it's time to close. 
George Burns said once that the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and to keep those as close together as possible. (laughs) I haven't learned that secret yet. I'm glad you like that joke because you might not like this conclusion. The turn of the 20th century, there was incredible optimism in our world, incredible optimism unrealistic optimism. People thought the world was becoming a lasting place of peace. Science could fix anything and was fixing everything. The industrial revolution had improved our world. Or so people thought, why would anybody want Jesus to come back in the early 1900s? You know, heaven is a place on earth. We don't need Jesus. But then something happened. Do you know what happened? First of all, in 1914, a 19-year-old kid, a Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip, killed the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and plunged the world in the most devastating world war in human history. It was called by people the war to end all wars, at least until World War II, a few years later, when an even more horrific, devastating war took place. And so all of that optimism just died And then after World War II, there was starvation, there was devastation throughout the world, especially in Europe. People were starving to death. Well, in 1950, after seeing all this devastation and the continuing effects of it, the great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he decided, you know what, we need to preach something different. So he preached the book of Habakkuk to his church. And you know what he said about that book? He said, if, if, if you really understand the book of Habakkuk, you wouldn't have been surprised at World War I or World War II. You would have been ready. And we weren't ready for the devastation that was coming. We would have been ready. I'll just remind you, church, that we are never promised by the Lord, not on this side of eternity, some utopia where everything is great and wonderful, Communism promises utopia, but never delivers. God didn't promise us that on this side of eternity. He didn't. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. Are you ready for that? Whatever may come. And, you know, we're Americans, right? We're, we're wide-eyed optimists. We are hopelessly and romantically optimistic all the time, right? I don't apologize for that. That's who we are as Americans. And we have this tendency, I think, to think that things are going to keep getting better. Things are going to get, you know, my 401k will be there when I turn 65 or 70. My, I'll never get cancer. They might get cancer. I'll never get cancer. I'll never die early. We'll never experience religious persecution. This is America. That'll never happen. Why? Why do we think that? How do we know that? How do you know that World War III isn't on the horizon? How do you know that you won't get cancer? How do you know that hard times aren't ahead for you? You don't know that. And we don't know that about our country either. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are your kids ready for whatever is going to happen in their future? Habakkuk shows us how to be ready. He shows us how to love God and fear God and follow God no matter what. And I'll say this too. I am an American. I am a white-eyed optimist. I hope things do turn around. I hope our, our country experiences revival. I pray for that. I want that. 
But I'm not banking on that. I'm banking on God and his eternal promises and his salvation. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray together. God, we do pray for revival in our land, for our city, for this nation, for this world. God, you've done that before. We pray that you would do it again. God, we're going to pray for the best and prepare for the worst. God, help us to be ready. Ready, ready, ready. To trust you and to serve you no matter what. And Lord, there may be somebody in this room right now who isn't saying, I hope bad times don't come in the future. They're saying bad times are already here. I'm already experiencing them. God, help that person right now to rejoice in the God of their salvation, to trust you in the midst of their suffering and their stress and their hurt and their anxiety. Help them to sing a song of submission, a song of remembrance, a song of rejoicing, a song of faith. Help us all, Lord, to have faith, trusting you in the dark moments of life. That's what we learn from Habakkuk. Plant it deep into our hearts, we pray. Amen.